Stanford University. Okay, welcome everybody. Um, it's a wonderful turnout and um, it's really nice to see all of you here. Um, in his tenor lectures, Mark Danner raised some very um, provocative comments about where we are and who we are as a nation. Um, and today we have two very distinguished commentators who are going to offer some reflections on the lecture and then we kick it off for a discussion. So the format is that each of our two commentators will speak for 20 to 25 minutes. Uh, Professor Danner will have a chance to respond for about 10 to 15 minutes and then we open it up for a collective discussion of the comments in the lectures. So our first commentator um, is Eric, Professor Eric Posner. Professor Posner is Kirkland and Ellis Professor of Law at the University of Chicago. He's a graduate of Yale College, where I'm happy to say he had a um, BA and an MA in philosophy, summa cum laude, um, and from Harvard Law School. And he's uh, published articles in contract law, international law, cost-benefit analysis, and um, some themes that are related, on some uh, works that are related to the themes of these lectures. He's the author of Climate Change Justice, The Perils of Global Legalism, Terror in the Balance, Security, Liberty, and the Courts, which he wrote with Adrian Vermeule, the New Foundations of Cost-Benefit Analysis, which he wrote with Matthew Adler, and The Limits of International Law, which he wrote with um, Jack Goldsmith, among other of his works. Our second commentator is Stephen Kleinman, who is a career intelligence officer with over 25 years of operational and leadership experience in assignments worldwide. He's a recognized expert um, in human intelligence and strategic interrogation, as well as a highly decorated veteran of three major military campaigns where he served as an interrogator. He's a graduate of the University of California, Davis, where he earned a bachelor's in psychology, the National University with a master of science in forensic sciences, and the National Defense Intelligence College with a master of science in strategic intelligence. His articles and papers have been published by Harvard University Press, the Defense Intelligence Journal, the American Intelligence Journal, and the National Defense Intelligence College Press. So as you can see, we have some very eminent um, and expert commentators with diverse perspectives, and I'll turn it over to Professor Posner, who'll begin. Thank you, Deborah, and um, thank you very much to the organizers uh, for putting together this fascinating series, and to Mark Danner for providing us with an extremely interesting and provocative lecture to, to talk about. Now, I want to begin by expressing a certain amount of uh, awkwardness here. I, I've, I've heard uh, Dan, uh, uh, Mr. Danner's lecture, as, as the rest of you have, and I read it as well, but it's the first of two lectures. And like the rest of you, I'm in the dark about what the uh, second lecture is. And, and this is a bit of a problem, I think, because as I understand the first lecture, Danner is, uh, is going to make an argument 
about um, the conflict with al-Qaeda and particularly the Bush administration's response to the uh, conflict with al-Qaeda with special um, focus on the use of torture. But I, I confess I'm not in the end absolutely sure what the argument is, what the ultimate point he wants us to take away from his lecture. Now, in this lecture, he makes a number of provocative uh, statements and assertions, and he has this, the centerpiece, of course, is this uh, description of the gruesome treatment of Abu Zubaydah. Um, and in the course of the argument, he, he says a number of things. Um, for example, that we are living in a state of exception. Um, he doesn't say what a state of exception is, though, and why it matters that we're living in a state of exception and what the significance is, the fact that we're living in a state of exception, in fact, that we have, if in fact we are. He mentions that states of exception have taken place in the past, and they've been declared by presidents who we honor, such as Lincoln and Roosevelt. So it can't be the case that there's something particularly, uh, particularly objectionable about the fact that we live in a, state, in a state of exception. But somehow, um, the Bush administration's declaration of a state of exception and its policies undertaken in the state of exception are, uh, are objectionable. Um, so one question is, what is the connection between the state of exception and the actual policies? Okay, so Danner goes on and um, he doesn't actually argue that the use of torture is unjustified. Um, I, I thought he would. That's certainly the overall sense that one gets from the, uh, the piece, and maybe this will come in the second half. Um, it's clear that he objects to the treatment of Abu Zubaydah, and, and his account is very persuasive. Um, it is quite plausible that the interrogation program of the Bush administration was marred by systemic, uh, systematic errors and significant errors and inappropriate political considerations. I think he does a good job of, of, uh, of displaying some of these, but he doesn't give us an overall account of the interrogation. He doesn't talk about whether there are successes, if there were, I, I don't know myself, and, uh, and how the successes and failures balance out if in fact they do. He doesn't address the moral quandaries that uh, torture, rise, uh, uh, the, the torture raises. So I don't feel like I'm in the position here to bring those up myself. I, I'm just not sure what his views are. Now, there is a, another argument which is fairly uh, substantive, which is that the members of the Bush administration felt guilty about the fact that 9-11 um, took place on their watch. And so for that reason, that sense of guilt shaped their response. In addition, uh, Danner argues that political considerations shaped the Bush administration's uh, response. And so what I thought I would do in my comments is talk about two of these themes. I, I'm not going to talk about torture, partly because Steve will talk about it from a perspective which is much more informed than mine is. But I do want to talk about the issue of the state of exception and what, why that's important. Uh, and then I'm going to, and, and, and before that though, I want to talk about this psychopolitical argument that Danner proposes for explaining why the uh, Bush administration acted the way it did. I do also want to say a little bit about the rhetoric. One of the things that really impressed me about the, uh, about the lecture is uh, Danner's uh, tremendous literary and rhetorical skill. But it troubles me also. Um, so you start off in the, in the first couple paragraphs with a description of the 9-11 attack. And he, there's this very striking imagery of the, you know, the dust wafting toward the heavens. 
and, uh, and, but it's all very abstract and remote, and you don't actually see what happened to any of the victims. You don't hear about the perpetrators themselves. None of these people are personified. Instead, you get a, a lot of abstractions about how complicated it was, how confused people are, what a transmogrification there was, how we went through these new, this new portal into a new world. And then when we get to the torture of Abu Zubaydah, suddenly everything is concrete. We're given uh, an account of the torture in clinical detail. We're told about the naked man, the drooling naked man strapped to a, to a table. And of course, the, there's a, the reader or the audience gets this great sense of uh, sympathy and out, outrage. By contrast, 9-11 is sort of, seems distant. It's as though it's become a kind of quasi-mythical past. Um, and and I, I think that's rhetorically very powerful, but I find it a little troublesome. Okay, but on to my arguments. Um, the first point, the Republicans and the Democrats on the war on terror. So let me talk about this psycho-political argument. The Bush administration's approach to the war on terror, Danner says, makes a very sharp distinction between the law enforcement model that came before and the military model that comes after. Indeed, he goes so far as to say that the Bush declares a state of exception, which is a quasi-synonym for state of emergency, to make clear that after 9-11, things are different from the way they were before 9-11. Okay, now why does the Bush administration do that? One hypothesis is simply that members of the Bush administration believed that the president needed discretion in order to, um, in order to address a, a threat, which at the time was very poorly understood, would need all tools available and should use them. When you're faced with a new problem, what can you do? You engage in trial and error, and that means mistakes will be made, but, but one hopes uh, a new, new uh, tools will be developed for dealing with this problem. Now, this is not Danner's view. Instead, he says that the Bush administration, members of the Bush administration felt guilt because 9-11 occurred on their watch. Now, they may well have felt guilt, but I do not think this is a plausible explanation for why the Bush administration took uh, the approach that it did. And to see why, imagine that the 9-11 attack had not taken place on 9-11, but it had in fact taken place on the last day of the Clinton administration. So the Bush administration comes into office. 9-11 was yesterday. Bush administration is not responsible for it, will not feel guilty about it. No one will claim that they're responsible for it. In this hypothetical world, do you think that the Bush administration would have taken a different approach to the conflict with al-Qaeda? Would it have been, for example, more moderate because it was no longer necessary to absolve the guilt of its members? I don't, I don't think that that's the case. So we can discuss that if, if you disagree with me. So I don't think there's much to the psychological argument. The political argument is much more powerful. The political argument is that the Bush administration had to draw a distinction between what the Democrats do and what we, the Republicans, do. So the Democrats subscribe, the, the feckless Democrats subscribe to this weak, outdated law enforcement model, which is wholly inappropriate to this problem, which they actually recognized, but they didn't take the steps that were necessary. And so we can't feel, we can't, we can't trust the Democrats to protect us. Now that the Republicans come into office, they're going to be muscular, they're going to be tough, they're going to take the gloves off, they'll use this new military approach uh, with the, in the conflict 
against al-Qaeda. So this was definitely, I think, a part of the rhetoric, and uh, it's not surprising when political parties blame each other for problems uh, that have existed. But I think there's also a problem with this argument. I think there's, a, there's an element of truth to it, but I, I don't think it explains much about how the Bush administration actually went about uh, confronting al-Qaeda. And there's a very simple reason for this, which is that the tactics that the Bush administration took in the conflict against al-Qaeda were essentially bipartisan. They would be embraced later by the Obama administration in large part, and many of them had precedence in what the Clinton administration had done in years earlier. Let's take, for example, the basic distinction between the war approach and the crime approach to the problem of al-Qaeda. The Obama administration has followed the Bush administration in arguing that al-Qaeda poses a military threat and that therefore a military response is justified. Now Obama is not just uh, following a, a Bush, he's also following Clinton. Clinton, as you know, used military force against al-Qaeda several instances, including the use of cruise missiles against al the suspected al-Qaeda uh, camps and uh, facilities in Sudan in Afghanistan. When President Clinton did this, he relied on his commander-in-chief power. There was no declaration of war or authorization for use of military force or not, but the president, as understood in American constitutional law, is always commander-in-chief, always has the power to use force to counter threats to American security. So there's a real continuity here. And this is true not just for the basic uh, distinction between war and crime, but for everything that follows from that. So the Obama administration, like the Bush administration, uses military detention. That means holding suspected members of al-Qaeda and associates for the duration of hostilities, regardless of where they're picked up and regardless, as, regardless how long uh, hostilities go on for. The uh, Obama administration, like the Bush administration, has taken a discretionary approach to the use of civilian trials the law enforcement model, or military detention. So it remains true under the Obama administration, as it was under the Bush administration, that a, a member of al-Qaeda might be tried in a civilian court, acquitted, and then detained indefinitely, because the person remains an enemy combatant. Both the Obama administration and the Bush administration have taken basically the same approach to habeas, both of them argue that habeas essentially does not apply abroad when, Amer when American forces detain foreigners overseas. Both the Obama administration and the Bush administration have asserted very strong interpretations of the state secrets privilege so that they can keep secret their various counterterror tactics. Both the Bush administration and the Obama administration continue to use military commissions, a classic tactic of war, it is true that the Obama administration has um, created some additional procedural protections that did not exist under the Bush administration, but they're relatively marginal. Now, there is a big difference in interrogation, of course. The Obama administration has repudiated torture, but even here there's less change than meets the eye. The Bush administration had given up on, harsh, on the harshest interrogation practices um, in, by 2007, and the Obama administration continues to use the controversial practice of rendition, which the Clinton administration had used quite frequently prior to 9-11. Rendition means capturing uh, a suspected uh, member of al-Qaeda abroad and turning him over to 
foreign security agencies. Now, under the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, there's always been a concern that those foreign security agencies would torture the detainee. The standard used in all three of administrations is that you don't turn over the person, the detainee, if the risk of torture is greater than essentially 50-50. The Bush administration uh, maintained secret prisons until, uh, until um, relatively late in the second Bush administration. The Obama administration has maintained the authority to maintain secret prisons. In his executive order, Obama said they would only be used on a short-term transitory basis. We don't know what that means. And of course, we can't tell what that means because the prisons are secret. In some respects, Obama has gone farther than the Bush administration. As people know, uh, as has been in the news a lot lately, the Obama administration has been quite enthusiastic about using drones for targeted assassination, including targeted assassination of Americans on foreign territory. Now, I might be a moral monster, but I find it hard to understand why people who are outraged by torture are not equally outraged by the use of targeted killing, which results in the same type of maiming, uh, mutilating, and, uh, and uh, cruelty uh, that torture does. Um, and finally, the Obama administration has not renounced Bush-era surveillance powers. Of course, Bush's wings were clipped to some extent, and this was brought under statutory authority. But Obama has in some ways expanded the uh, facilities and resources of the NSA so that it may continue to engage in domestic surveillance. If you want to understand why the Obama administration has not been enthusiastic about prosecuting Bush administration officials for violating the law in the, in the conflict with al-Qaeda, part of the answer, of course, is that the Obama administration is afraid of a political backlash. But there's another problem, which is deep. There's another reason, which is deeper which is that the Obama administration, I speculate, doesn't want to send a signal to its own subordinates, agents, soldiers, that they will be in legal jeopardy. And of course, if people in the Obama administration learn that Bush administration officials who violated the law or who may have violated the law will be prosecuted, then they may be less enthusiastic about or more cautious about targeted assassinations, renditions, both of which are to some extent, uh, questionable as a legal matter. Well, where does this leave us? Now, I'm not saying that uh, Obama and Bush are the same in all respects. And one important point is that Obama inherited a situation that was shaped in large part by the Bush administration. But this is why Clinton is important. Clinton, Clinton set many of the precedents that both Bush and Obama have relied on, precedents that are relevant specifically to, how to, uh, to, to the question of how to deal with um, al-Qaeda. Now, one response to this is just that the real problem here is not a partisan problem. Of course, it, it is to some extent, or a political problem, although it is to some extent. The real problem is the expansion of presidential powers. What we should be worried about is the, just the bare fact that the president, whether it's Bush, Obama, or someone else, is able to have so much influence on counterterrorism policy. And this brings me to the second uh, point I want to make about Danner's lecture. And this is the point about the state of exception. So what is the state of exception? What does this phrase mean? It sounds a little odd. It has this foreign ring to it. Um, 
Actually, the idea is very old. When, pe when people talk about the state of exception, they usually, they usually mean to refer to Carl Schmitt, the Weimar era and Nazi era and post-Nazi era German uh, philosopher who coined this term or who's translated, whose who's German, whose who's use of a similar term in German has been translated in this way, although the, the German word could also just be translated merely as state of emergency. But the idea goes back to the birth of, uh, of liberalism. Uh, John Locke was the influential, uh, you know, the influential liberal philosopher was famous, of course, for arguing that government should be limited, that we don't want this executive this monarch uh, determining policy. It's much better to have a legislature. The legislature reflects the will of the people. The legislature itself will be restricted by consent or by constitutional norms. And the legislature will debate publicly policy, which the executive will simply execute, right? So the executive becomes a more passive figure. And so one objection to Locke's vision that a, a royalist or a monarchist might make is, well, how would this legislature deal with an emergency? What happens when there's an invasion? What happens when the, the life of the state is at risk? And Locke's response was executive prerogative. Locke believed that in times of emergency, the executive would be justified in casting aside legal norms, constitutional constraints, and doing whatever is necessary to address the emergency. Now, now Locke didn't elaborate much on his ideas, and there are obvious uh, concerns that uh, Locke's views uh, raise. For example, how do we make sure that the executive goes back to being a subordinate office after the emergency is over? Now, the founders were, as everyone knows, well-versed uh, well in Locke, and they too dealt with this problem. Of course, the U.S. Constitution says very little about the emergencies, but the founders in other places essentially take a Lockean view, although with all kinds of subtle variations. Hamilton believed that the Constitution properly interpreted implicitly gives the executive the power to do what's necessary to counter serious threats. Jefferson did not like the Hamiltonian position. He believed that the president had to act extra-constitutionally and then ask for some kind of political judgment. But all these guys, Madison, others, all of them understood that emergencies create a serious problem for liberal democracy, for limited government. One needs a forceful response to threats to the state. Is it possible for the legislature to do that by itself? They assume no, but the person who really um, addresses this problem in the most uh, rigorous, I guess, and, and, and brilliant way is Carl Schmitt. Now, Carl Schmitt was, you know, not a great guy. He, he was an authoritarian. Um, but his, his lasting influence comes from his critique of liberal democracy or rule of law. And Schmitt lived in the 20th century, unlike the founders, right? And what struck Schmitt as special about the 20th century is the speed at which things changed, the flux and dynamism of modern life. Now, Schmidt believed that the problem for parliamentary democracy or liberal democracy is that whenever the legislature, you know, the legislature is slow, it's this large collective body, people have to go back to the constituents and talk to them. So when the legislature addresses some problem and passes some laws, you know, by the time they're done, everything's changed and the laws are no longer really relevant there's this problem, there's this tension between the general norms that law establishes and the fact that there are these ultimate, you know, these frequent contingencies and changes that, that may render them 
uh, irrelevant. And the only real way to address this, or one way to address this, is to give the executive a certain amount of discretion or leeway to implement the legislature's norms. Well, fine, so maybe liberal democracy in some form can be preserved even in modern life, but the real problem comes when crises occur. And so in Schmidt's views, by the, by the 20th century, countries are constantly undergoing crises. He, of course, is writing in Germany in the 1920s and 1930s, during which there are constant financial, economic, and, and military crises. And he argued that legislatures are simply institutionally disabled to address crises. Things change too rapidly. Their, their response must be immediate. Um, Usually the government has to act secretly or with some degree of secrecy. All of these things are inimical to the idea of limited government and the rule of law. Legislatures can't really do anything. Courts can't really do anything. The executive has to act. And this is where the idea of the state of exception comes from. So the norm, the usual laws, apply in normal times. But when there's a crisis, an exceptional state, then um, normal laws are no longer useful. The executive has to act in this state of exception. And Schmidt argues, really, in the end, it's the executive who has to both declare the state of exception, determine that there's a crisis in the first place, and then take such actions as are necessary um, in light of the crisis. Schmidt thought liberal democracy was doomed. He just thought that once this happened, the executive would take over. It would manipulate public opinion. It would undermine elections. It would control the press. It would suppress political opponents. And, and that's ultimately why he was sympathetic to authoritarianism. Now, we don't have to go all the way with Schmidt, and there's no reason to do so. But it is striking to look at American history through a Schmidtian eye. And this, is, this will bring us back to Danner's argument. Danner says that there have been states of exception before. And he mentions the Civil War and World War II. But there are others as well, of course. So consider World War I and the Red Scare right afterwards, the Great Depression, which was an economic state of exception, where uh, Roosevelt actually threatened Congress that he would engage and he would sort of set up a dictatorship unless they gave him the powers that he needed. The Cold War, okay, a much longer state of exception than the one that exists so far to today. And the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, another state of exception, sort of overlapping with the war on terror state of the exception. Think of it, over the last 100 years, most of them have been states of exception. Most of these years have taken place during states of exception, suggesting that it's really the normal which is exceptional and the exception which is normal. One can even go farther. Legal scholars who write about constitutional law and the administrative state argue that you know, basically since the Great Depression, Power has been flowing from the legislature and from the courts to the executive. You need a large national bureaucracy to deal with, oh, environmental problems, financial problems, health and safety. And all of these uh, problems are, in fact, mainly addressed not by Congress in the modern world, but by the bureaucracy, by the executive, using the enormous amount of discretion which has been delegated it, to it uh, by the legislature. I just wanted to point out one little interesting thing about uh, Danner's lecture. He says that one of the features of Bush's state of exception is that he either you know, basically worked around or ignored all of these laws that had been enacted in the 1970s, and I would add the anti-torture law of 1996, so that he would have the sort of discretion that he thought would be necessary to address the, the threat of al-Qaeda. Well, remember, these are all post-Watergate laws. So what was the, how should we regard the president pre-1973? He was not constrained by all of these laws that Bush circumvented. So in a way, 
there was a state of exception all the way up until the 1970s. Okay, well that's an exaggeration. But the fact is, something significant has happened. The classical system of separation powers, a rule of law liberalism that was established in 1789, has gradually eroded. This erosion took place gradually during the 19th century, although you might remember that the Indian tribes were the al-Qaeda of the 19th century, against whom the, you know, the executive had quite considerable discretionary powers. The Civil War was, of course, the low watermark of separation of powers. Lincoln was virtually a dictator and was recognized as such at the time. But it's really in the 20th century where the separation of powers and the rule of law have um, uh, eroded at an accelerating uh, rate. And in large measure, then, Schmidt's vision has been confirmed, except he made one mistake, which is that although we don't have the rule of law to the same extent as the founders envisioned, we do still have a democracy of a sort. And we don't live in a tyranny or a dictatorship, at least in the colloquial uh, meaning of those words. What happened and what Schmidt missed is that democratic politics can survive even when these complex Enlightenment-style legal structures put up by the founders have withered away. Democratic politics constrained the executive to a considerable amount. So much, in fact, and this is in large part, I think, thanks to the independent media, but so much, in fact, that often our presidents, far from seeming like tyrants, although they do occasionally seem like tyrants, often they seem like helpless giants hemmed in on all sides by the demands of politics. So, let me conclude, the erosion of the rule of law has not spelled the end of democratic politics. The major significance of 9-11 is not irrevocable alteration of our country, to paraphrase, to paraphrase Danner. We haven't passed through a brightly lit portal. We haven't been transmogrified. What's happened, what's the major significance of 9-11 is that it unveiled the hidden structure of our political system as it has existed for at least 70 years a political structure to which the Bush administration, like its successor, the Obama administration, has largely been faithful. So thank you, and I'll turn it over to Steve. First, I'd like to thank the leadership and the faculty and the staff of Stanford University for inviting me here. Uh, this is truly an honor, and I have to share with you the fact that in the fall of 1975, I would have paid dearly to attend this school, and now they actually paid me to come back, so the moral lesson is don't let them negotiate for you. Uh, where to begin? Where to begin? Uh, let's say this. I, I agree with most of Professor Danner's points. I'm ambivalent about a couple, and there's two with which I profoundly disagree. So thank you very much for your time. And, oh. They didn't say I had to be specific, but okay, we will. First of all, I want to thank Professor Danner for your, your service in keeping this, this, this issue, this very vital, critical issue alive and informing us because the debate most certainly is not complete. It's not resolved about uh, the United States doctrine, not only on interrogation, but our position on torture. So I thank you for that. I think that's, that's an important service. Uh, and as, as Professor Posner mentioned, your presentation was evocative, but I think it was important. Uh, I don't think it was hyperbole. I think it was important for people to understand, even if only through words and the images that words can conjure up, what is going on, what is taking place, not consistently and not always, 
But it is taking place, and it has taken place. It's taking place not only in, in the names of those who, who are involved with that, but, but, but every member of, or every citizen of the United States. And as I listened to him speak, there was one, a number of themes emerged, but one that emerged for me that, that was striking, and that is uh, one very consistent, uh, a theme that has echoed through the hallways of sovereign leadership since antiquity. And that comes from Sun Tzu and the idea, we've all heard that, and the importance of knowing oneself and knowing the enemy. And the caveat that the general provides is if you enter any conflict knowing not one or even worse, knowing neither, you face great peril in that battlefield. I would argue then that we face great peril because we have this endemic cultural myopathy and I think an ill-conceived idea of American exceptionalism that has informed and helped even launch the so-called war on terrorism. And we continue to wage it with what I would describe as a profound ignorance of the true nature, not only of the, the, of the, of the adversary, but the true nature of ourselves. Now, I need to take it aside. I've been introduced in my military status. I should have said this beginning. I'm here as a private citizen. I speak for Steve Kleinman only. I don't speak to the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or any agency of the United States government, including the ones that probably listen in on what we're talking about today. <laughs> no, just kidding. Testing, one, two. <laughs> now, I base this assertion on the fact that despite the tragic loss that occurred on September 11, 2001, the, the, the falling of the World Trade Centers, of the attack on the Pentagon, and, and the loss of lives on Flight 93 in the Pennsylvania field, despite that, the geopolitical landscape is unchanged. What I'm saying is 9-11 was a day that nothing changed. Now, I don't mean... Obviously, for those who lost lives and those who, who have empathy and sympathy for those, it, 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 it was a disturbing event. But on the general geostrategic landscape, nothing changed. We had been, we, the United States, had been the target of a systematically increasing terrorist campaign. We all know about the attacks in Tanzania and Kenya, the embassies there, the loss of lives, and then the loss of 14 sailors, the injury of others on the USS Cole. Going back even further, the attack on the World Trade Center in the early 1990s, it culminated with the attack on 9-11. But the change that began to occur was not just at the White House. It wasn't just at the Pentagon or the CIA or the Department of Justice. That change also took place on Main Street and at Starbucks and at the movies where people debated these issues, where people, where Americans were forced to re-examine not only how they saw the world, but how they saw themselves in the mirror. Not long ago, and it, it's always sort of a surreal experience for me as, as a career intelligence officer who spent 25 years involved in part in interrogation. Uh, that it wasn't long ago that people didn't care about interrogation. It was something they watched on TV, but they didn't, certainly they didn't have an opinion about it. Not a strong opinion. Why would they? And, and also if we look back, let's say September 10th, 2001, what do you suppose the average American citizen thought about terrorism as a, as a practice performed on their behalf by any element in the United States government, even once, even once. I, I suspect the polls would show that very few, if anybody, would support it. And those who did support it probably wouldn't even express that publicly. Now it becomes a point of debate. So what has changed? Or better yet, what has fueled that change? And I think Professor Danner's remarks helps us understand that. What has changed is as simple as it is insidious, and that is fear. It's fear, fear of further attacks. We've heard that over and over again. Fear of, of, of Americans living abroad who face new threats. And perhaps most importantly, fear of an attack, a sustained attack on our way of life. 
People worry that we're attacked because of our freedoms. But what a powerful, powerful, powerful force fear can be. And until our country found itself in the chilly, embra the chilly embrace of that fear, it could not, perhaps would not suspect what lows we were willing to descend in terms of our behavior, in terms of our conduct. Professor Danner described for us what it looked like, what that fear looked like when manifested in the way we treated some individuals in our custody. It's important for us to recall history and think of General Washington forward. The standard in this country, the policy of this country, was to treat prisoners in our custody with care. Even going back to the Revolutionary War where the British were treating American soldiers in a most horrific fashion, General Washington was very clear that that's not the way we conduct ourselves. Because what happens is when you take your standard of conduct from your enemy, by my definition, you have already lost that war. Again and again, we've treated these detainees in a fashion that not only violated, in my view, and I'm not a legal scholar by any stretch, violated international law and pre-existing national law. But from my perspective, what's more important, we, vi we violated our own moral standard, that moral standard that we purport to the world that made us different, that made us special. And Professor Danner's comments remind us of that cognitive and moral dislocation that occurred in the post-9-11 environment. As we struggled in vain to understand what we thought was a seemingly impenetrable adversary, we lost sight of ourselves. We were lost to the point that we allowed, in some corners, celebrated, the brilliant legal machinations that turned this fear-based disgrace of a policy into the policy of the state, an event that ushered in what Professor Danner has described as a state of exception. Then he poses this question and leaves it to us to answer, and that is, when will this state of exception end? So, I will use this opportunity to answer it for myself. I think it will end when we use precision language to drive precision thinking so that when we hear the words enhanced interrogation techniques, we don't accept that as a euphemism for coercion and torture. Abuse, in my view, by any name, stains the national character in equal measure. The state of exception will end when we refuse to accept a misguided strategy like the concept of a war on terrorism. That strategy is, is bankrupt at the beginning because you can't declare a war on what is essentially a tactic any more than you can declare a war on strategic aerial bombardment, naval blockades, or long-range artillery. I'm usually an optimist in life, but I'm concerned about the potential success of a war on terrorism because I look at, at the precedent. Other wars that we have launched in something like this, the war on poverty, the war on, on uh, drugs are two good examples. And again, being a uh, normal optimist, I have to say that I don't give it much chance of success. In fact, as of 10 o'clock this morning, the report from those battlefronts is we have more of what we're trying to fight against. And I think it'll end when journalists of Professor Danner's stature, instead of writing about this, are able to write about the fact that we have made remarkable achievements in real building the infrastructure in this country, that our schools have returned to world-leading uh, uh, quality, and that People are getting jobs, not in Afghanistan and not in Iraq, but right here at home. I was going to add the, the state of exception at end when the healthcare crisis was resolved, but I couldn't spell eternity, so I'll have to move on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but at, yet in a real sense, and I think Professor Posner uh, alluded to this, in a, in a very real sense, this state of exception, in one manifestation or another, has been with us always, and perhaps always will. It's what happens, though, in my view, is when some men and I think the track, I use men specifically because the track record is pretty clear in this regard. But some men wish to turn a nation of laws into a nation of men. 
you know, there's a, and, and how do we, how do we fight that? How do we, we look at their tactic? The tactic is often fear. Sometimes fear that starts in reality, but then ends up in the virtual theater of our minds, and that, that's, that's, that's nurtured, that's fertilized, until it grows into something that consumes us. So how do we deal with it? Well, you've heard, we all know that the United States is known as the home of the brave, right? Why is that? Because it takes bravery, it takes brave people to stand fast when the laws, when, when the laws come under the attack of those who wish to undermine them by fear. And it takes bravery to promise to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I'm telling you, my brothers and sisters, you don't have to wear a uniform to either take that oath or better still, to act on it. So I'd like to close with a final thought, a recommendation, really, because Professor Danner has graphically illustrated with his stirring observations about the slow, ponderous slide down the slippery slope of constitutional catastrophe. But the backstory is, again, it's not the first time that elective leaders have sought to steal from us the rights that make this country fun fundamentally different from others. I think, I think we are recovering. We have fortunately recovered from that, that ghastly fear of past episodes. And we're still moving from that insidious shadow. But we can't mistake what patriotism really means. It doesn't mean taking what one person thinks is right, or one individual, one personality, or a small cabal of individuals who think they know how to keep this, this country safe. It needs to be debated thoroughly in a robust fashion, and always, always, always girded by the, the strength, by the, the battle gear of the rule of law. So I think we will regain our, our former sense of what it means to be Americans, what it means to be free. But I think we need to be aware, when we make that rational calculus, of what the future looks like. And I think that same fear, ego, capitulation cycle will, will present itself again. And how do we deal with it? Well, that's where Professor Danner, I think, performs perhaps his greatest service to us with this presentation. Because his words should serve as a clarion call, or better yet, put it in the proper context, that should serve as something like the incessant blasting of, of music that we put into a detainee's cell to remind us of those images that should disturb, the images, the words that should disturb. And so what that, what that disturbance should remind us of is how a heinous disregard for the rule of law and for what is right. So let me close with this recommendation, if you would. If, if we see that recommendation again, if you see that, excuse me, if you see that scenario unfolding before you once again, I say you stand up and say, like hell. And then better yet, act as if you really meant those words. Thank you for your time. Okay. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you very much uh, for these um, impressive, eloquent, moving, and for me, very thought-provoking uh, responses to my uh, lecture of yesterday. Um, and I'm grateful to Stanford, not only for inviting me, but for inviting such um, able, interesting, uh, and varied commentators. Um, it strikes me that uh, these two reactions, um, though on their surface uh, they were diametrically opposed in their view of, of what I said, uh, had rather much in common. Both of them turned on a central point, uh, which I took up as well, and which perhaps I should have made uh, more explicit. Um, and that is, in what way is this time we're talking about the same 
and in what way is it different? Um, Professor Posner uh, essentially said that we are drifting, what the state of exception, as I used it in any event, indicates, is that we're drifting rather more rapidly, perhaps, uh, in a direction that we were already going. Uh, this is an acceleration. Um, it's been going on for the last 70 years. Um, it, in fact, uh, was happening. Many of the attributes I, I pointed out of the state of exception were there in the Clinton administration, uh, as they are in the Obama administration. Uh, so therefore, we're headed uh, basically in the same uh, direction we were. This may be an acceleration of it, but there's a sense of inevitability about it. And I've essentially used rhetoric uh, and fancy language to heighten this in an, in an emotive, uh, but actually not very specific um, way. Uh, in a sense, Colonel Kleiman uh, makes to some extent the same argument that we have been moving in this direction, that the terror, war on terror uh, was there before, uh, but that what is different, and I certainly agree with this uh, uh, very much so, is the reaction on the part of the public. Um, but I, I want to essentially, I guess, disagree with, with both of them in emphasizing that what is distinctive about the time we're in and what separates the state current state of exception, and I'll talk a little bit about the term in a moment, um, from those others that we've passed through in our history, uh, presided over, as Professor Posner pointed out, by some of the presidents that we think of certainly as the greatest. What distinguishes it is that uh, it is endless, which is to say, I'm not, now I'm not predicting the future, I'm talking about how it was imposed. Uh, when you look at states of exception, and I would go not to Carl Schmitt, but to the Roman dictatorship, for example, which was a very well-established institution under the Republic, uh, and finally ended, trailed off and ended uh, as the empire uh, came on the scene with Sulla and, of course, uh, Caesar. The heart of the Roman dictatorship um, was its necessity embodied in its establishment that it end in um, a specific amount of time, in this case, six months. Um, what is different, it seems to me, about the age we're living in is that the state of exception is linked to a war that is defined explicitly by the administration that declared it, and not explicitly, but in a more complicated way, for, for perhaps one could say, um, it was defined as endless, as not ending. Um, as a permanent crisis uh, brought on by the terrorist attacks uh, that could not be ended, as President Bush often said, with a ceremony on the deck of an aircraft carrier, or a battleship, excuse me, um, in Tokyo Bay, which of course is our model of the end of a, of a great war uh, in 1945, um, that it would go on indefinitely. And in fact, if we are linking the state of exception uh, to the war on terror, uh, and I would disagree with, with Professor uh, Posner, I think, uh, in his uh, description of that being essentially a continuation of many of the Clinton policies. But if we link it to the war on terror, which is to say we link it to the terrorist threat, to the fact that we may be struck again uh, by terrorist groups, small or large, uh, then in fact it does have no end. Um, and if it is tied, as Colonel Kleinman, I think, uh, described very eloquently, 
deep into the politics of fear, deep into a psychological change that's happened in our country. And I agree with him completely uh, that that is the enormous change of 9-11. Uh, the, the politics um, and thinking of the polity itself, if it is linked to that, um, it becomes dependent not only on what terrorists do, but on what governments do uh, to confront them. Um, that is, it is open-ended. Um, and I think that is, to me, the distinction. Um, let me say a word about uh, Professor Posner's extremely, I thought, powerful uh, presentation uh, and eloquent presentation, uh, particularly in his remarks on Schmidt, which I thought were, uh, were rather uh, fascinating. Um, I had the feeling at some points uh, uh, that you were making my argument for me, um, uh, which is to say the remarks about uh, going backwards toward Clinton and the state of exception, or the policies that I identified as uh, making up the state of exception, and their foreshadowings in the Clinton administration, and then going forward to the politics of Obama and seeing them maintained, both of which, in different ways, it seems to me, were, were part of what I was trying to say. And I take your point, by the way, that the second category about Obama is for today's lecture, and you are, uh, in a sense, disarmed uh, by not having a full text, and I apologize uh, to you for that. Um, when we look back at Clinton, uh, it, it seems to me it's absolutely true that some of these policies were Clinton administration policies, some of them, quite uh, limited way. Certainly extraordinary rendition is the most uh, well-known one. Um, but it seems to me that speaks to the fact uh, that the Bush administration, in drawing this bright line uh, between uh, the law enforcement model, quote-unquote, uh, and the war on terror, and identifying the law enforcement model as a failure uh, repeatedly, as it still is being done, by the way, by the Re Republican uh, Party, and especially in Congress, and also by the former vice president, was oversimplifying and distorting the reality of the case. Uh, so it seems to me, I mean, I was arguing that, and um, it seems to me you helped make my argument, and for that, I thank you. Um, when we look forward at <laughs> when we look forward at the Obama administration, uh, you identified, I thought, very uh, concisely with admirable uh, pointedness, I'm going to copy that, uh, the, um, uh, the remnants, as it were, of the state of exception. Uh, but part of my argument, of course, made yesterday and, and made uh, in more detailed form later this afternoon, is that we are stuck in the state of exception and those policies are continuing. Um, uh, so I'm not uh, quite sure that it is a very convincing argument about, uh, to make that the uh, state of exception is bipartisan uh, in response to an argument that we are stuck with it because of the political realities that it has created and that that is in fact a harmful part now of our politics. Um, you're essentially arguing uh, that what I'm describing uh, as a rape was in fact a seduction. And I am saying that this is not actually something, the, Clinton, the Obama administration, if you look at what it said before taking office, and if you look at the policies it has adopted, uh, that is, its declared policies when it arrived, the Guantanamo case is the most obvious, uh, but there are many others, and the way it has had to backpedal on these because of political combat, and politics obviously are not abolished, they're a part of our uh, of our world, uh, very much so, as the politics of fear is, as Colonel Kleiman said. Um, you see that 
this is what has changed in our politics. Uh, so using that as an argument about bipartisanship, it seems to me, is somewhat, <laughs> is somewhat uh, a kind of grand and rather audacious begging of the question. Um, one quick word about Schmidt. I, I thought your remarks on Schmidt were, were fascinating. Um, I wish there was more time to talk about Carl Schmidt. I'm sure there are probably people here who are interested in him. The other interesting figure is Giorgio Agamben. Uh, who I think is very also uh, very interesting on the state of exception. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Schmidt, at least in my reading, uh, read the state of exception. I mean, the famous line that everyone quotes is, uh, sovereign is he who declares the exception, uh, and essentially read emergency powers as indicating something absolutely fundamental about the workings of politics. Um, that is, who has sovereignty is, is he, who, he who, being institutional or single uh, agent, who can set aside uh, normal politics. Uh, so it's an indication uh, essentially about what the system is and in essence, as I tried to end, um, who we are. Um, it's a point of Agamben's as well, as you may know, in his little book of the same title, State of Exception, uh, that there is a general drift in this direction throughout the politics of the West. That is, he agrees with you uh, uh, completely. Um, and I, well, maybe we can talk about that more uh, in, the back, in the back and forth. Um, let me say a word about uh, uh, Colonel Kleinman's uh, presentation, which I was moved by, um, and which I was very, very, uh, just very glad to hear. Um, we have, I guess again, all three of us have different views here about the centrality of what was really the key issue in my talk, uh, which is torture. Um, I guess we're talking here as if it was about the state of exception, and, and to, to some extent it was, but it also was about the centrality of torture uh, for what our politics is, how it operates, uh, what it indicates about the politics of fear, and the transformation, I called it a metamorphosis, that was affected by uh, the events of 9-11. Of uh, and I, again, as I say, I agree completely with what uh, Colonel Kleinman said about the politics of fear. I also have to say that I think I was very struck by uh, Professor Posner's, Posner's remark about targeted killing. Uh, you say this also in your extremely uh, powerful book, uh, that it's why is it that people object you know, to torture so much, but they don't necessarily object to targeted killing? I mean, you know, killing is much more torturous than torture, essentially. You know, you're killing somebody, it's even worse. I have to say that I, I, uh, I completely disagree with that. And this is quite aside from any arguments we can have about targeted killing, which is something we, we can argue about. Uh, its role in the war, whether it actually uh, saves lives in killing people, um, which I think the administration would probably argue, uh, that this is a less lethal way to fight uh, the war in South Asia than other methods might be, or less, in a less politically damaging one, et cetera. They would make those arguments. I want to look at what you said about, about torture. I don't think that torture is, fits on a continuum from you know, slapping somebody all the way to uh, killing them from the air with a, with, a, uh, with a drone or with a Hellfire missile or whatever it is. Um, I think torture is something different. I think it's a different category of activity. Uh, I think, uh, with Colonel Kleiman, that it indicates something particular about uh, uh, the polity. And it also indicated something quite particular to the framers. That is, um, it is uh, 
indicates something quite different about the power of the state. Uh, it is, in a sense, on the absolute opposite end of the spectrum from the liberal idea of a limited government. Now, one could say to that, I suppose, well, killing people is even farther along the same spectrum. But I, I don't think that's true. I think war is one thing. Uh, and the Battle of Trenton, indeed, one, you know, it would, it would be useful to look at Washington's words at the Battle of, as reported at the Battle of Trenton, and why he felt that this new nation should not torture prisoners, even though they were being tortured right across the river. Why? Um, the abuse itself, uh, what is done, um, it seems to me uh, contradicts uh, the very idea of limited liberal government because the state essentially reaches through the skin of a human being and seizes control of his or her nervous system. And um, I tried to indicate yesterday with my list of eight different factors um, the way the various attributes of the state of exception essentially made the state stupid. That is, my, one of my objections to the use of this the way it was used in the interrogation regime uh, was that it fit along a continuum also uh, with um, other parts of that regime. For example, this example, the so-called, I called it the broken funnel. This idea of pulling everybody in, everybody in, get, you know, putting them there, interrogating them. And the same, uh, it seems to me, unbridled impulse of fear was responsible also for decisions about uh, torture. Um, that is, it was based on fear. Um, it was not based on a practical search for knowledge. And it was, of course, just incidentally, from all our indications, ineffective. So I guess my argument at the end of the day has to do with risk, uh, information, and the decisions our leaders have made. You know, I'm reminded, uh, I'm going to say this this afternoon, but I may as well say it now, of a remark that uh, Stalin supposedly made, uh, maybe the colonel can tell me if this is true, uh, when uh, the American Secretary of State was sent by Truman to say, get out of Poland, uh, and to essentially to flaunt our nuclear, our atomic monopoly at him, and to say, you know, if you don't move, he said it subtly, but if you don't uh, get out of Poland, we're going to, uh, God knows what we'll do. And uh, Stalin is reputed to have remarked, uh, atomic weapons are for people with weak nerves. Atomic weapons are for people with weak nerves. And when I look at the results of the torture policy and the fact that, as I said, the metamorphosis that has been affected, and that is that this policy is now a policy. Obama has stopped it, but it remains something that, by all indications, could be reinstated rather than something that is generally agreed within the government to be outside the law, period. Um, that is what I think, that torture in retrospect uh, was for people with weak nerves. Um, and that a lot of, uh, uh, Professor Posner says in his book, and I agree with this, that it's inevitable that government make, makes mistakes. Uh, and uh, during states of exception, it's inevitable that government will make mistakes. Lincoln did, Roosevelt did, obviously, Wilson did. But I think that the current state of exception has written into it a more pervasive tendency toward error based on fear that is reinforced by the politics of fear that Colonel Kleinman identified so eloquently 
and that we are left with today. And that, I think, is what's different. Thank you. Mm -hmm. to the response to the commentators to open it up for general discussion and I'll keep a cue. Josh. Um, so Mark, in, 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 about two-thirds of the way through the comments you made just now, you said, well, the issue is that we're really talking about is torture and somehow we got off on this topic of the state of exception, more or less. You said that. And I think we Focused on, you're focused on well, well, I to be fair, I focused on it, so yes, you know, in my talk, so I'm, I'm not saying you're it's. You're anticipating my point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was. Uh, I, so, so I wanted to just focus to focus our attention there because the um, I'm, I was surprised in your response to Eric that um, you didn't use the account that you gave that you gave of the state of perception as a way of exploring the issues of continuity and discontinuity, both back to Clinton and looking forward from Bush and mm -hmm. to Obama. And I wonder if you could reflect on that now. So here, here's, so there were eight elements. Uh, that there's a declaration of war, not police action. Uh, the war is unending. Uh, that it is conducted by, against an enemy, arguably, outside the bath, that's argued to be outside the bounds of any legality, that it's conducted by an executive, also argued by some to be outside the bounds of any legality, uh, that's conducted on the basis of um, uh, public secrets, that is, information about the conduct of the policy that's selectively released, um, that is uh, uh, used as an instrument of domestic politics, so the domestic politics becomes a continuation of war by other means, so to speak, uh, that's conducted in an improvisational style and through the use of torture. So um, now, I'm, you said that this is the quiddity, this is the what, this is the essence, the whatever. And I, I was assuming that you thought of all of those conditions as together defining the state of exception. Um, now, if you think of the war on uh, the um, state of exception as defined by all eight of those together, and there's that the passage through the portal that you were just, was a passage to that state of exception, then it seems to me that um, you're maybe conceding too much ground in saying that there was a, something like a state of exception under the Clinton administration because those eight, and, and more to the point, maybe this is anticipating what you're going to say today, uh, that the state of exception continues under the Obama administration. Let me just take two of the eight features. The improvisational style that you describe, uh, uh, amateur improvisational style, um, doesn't seem to be. The uh, use of the war on terror by 
is not used by the Obama administration as a weapon of domestic politics, at least not in the same way. And the issue of torture, well, it's a, it's a complicated call because, as you say, and as Elaine has also said, there's something troubling about announcing that torture, the decision to torture or not, is a political decision as opposed to something that's outside the bounds of it's legally prohibited. Um, but uh, arguably, uh, there's an important difference with respect to the, pre the presence of a state of exception between a world in which people say we are going to torture and there's torture and, and one in which they say that there's not. So, I, so what's the question? The question is could you say with reference to those eight features that you say define together individually necessary, jointly sufficient, the state of exception, could you say to talk with respect to them about the issues of continuity and uh, discontinuity? Uh, well, thanks, thanks for that. Um, you know, this is essentially, we're at the same uh, point that uh, Professor Posner identified at the start of his talk, which is I'm actually going to talk about that later, later this afternoon. That really is the, the, the subject. Uh, so um, let me just say a couple of things. One is um, uh, I certainly wouldn't say those eight factors, individually necessary and together sufficient, as you put it, are define the state of exception. They're, as I said in my talks, I, they are idiosyncratic. I, have a, I mean, I'm not saying I, didn't, uh, uh, I don't uh, believe that those define it, but I don't believe that they are, period, the definition. And I certainly don't believe uh, that they are all with us still. I said several times that they have evolved, matured, and changed. It uh, seems uh, obvious, but one should uh, reaffirm it. And Professor you know, Posner talked about this. Uh, that and, and actually, there's a very good piece that I would commend. You probably know by Jack Goldsmith uh, a while back in the uh, quite a while back, I think now in the New Republic, uh, essentially which takes up the continuity um, of Obama policies with Bush administration policies, and essentially makes a rather clever argument saying that Dick Cheney, in standing there and saying he's renouncing the war on terror, he's leaving us uh, vulnerable, is actually getting it completely wrong because in fact. Many of his policies are very similar, point one. And point two, Cheney's policies are the ones that uh, were renounced, and they were renounced by the Bush administration in its second term. Uh, so um, I, mean, I don't agree with everything he says, but it's a very smart uh, analysis. And I certainly agree with the central point, which is that these things evolved under uh, George W. Bush. There's no question about that. It, it, in some, uh, some of them evolved as a result of uh, simple changes of policy and discovery that things uh, didn't work. Uh, some of them uh, evolved as a result and in reaction to court decisions. Uh, and one of the interesting things about this period, I think, is that uh, the courts at the end of the day were sort of the last resort of, uh, of these policies. The courts tended to strike them down isn't quite right. I mean, it, it limited them in various, the Supreme Court eventually limited them, them in various ways. And then Congress, all too reluctantly, tended to step in uh, and patch things up. So that also uh, uh, is a reason why you have uh, this evolution. But what interests me in particular is the kind of metamorphosed state of exception we're left with, if you will. Uh, you know, Professor Posner set some of this stuff out uh, for me. 
um, we just disagree on, on why it's happened this way, um, uh, and perhaps it's inevitability. Um, but uh, you, one point you made yourself, which is uh, torture having been uh, clearly recognized as outside the bounds of law, uh, which, by the way, uh, does not mean it didn't happen at the hands of the U.S. government. It did. Uh, but the official record of it we have, the discussions within the government, the memos approving it, the official apparatus attached to it, all of these things are unknown, so far as I know, in our, in our history. Uh, so that, you're quite right, it is extremely significant that the president stood up on his first full, or either his first or second full day in office, and said, we're not doing this anymore. Henceforth, we're adhering to the Army Field Manual. Uh, which itself has its, has its problems, but he did indeed uh, say this. But comments he's made since have, have shown that, you know, he's prohibited it, as he said, which is to say it's something he did. Um, uh, now, the other, uh, another obvious uh, remnant, uh, as it were, although remnant is too inert a way to put it, I guess, is the problem of uh, extended or indefinite detention which is now being uh, fought over and is connected, obviously, very, very directly to, to the Guantanamo problem. And it seems to me we see working quite vividly on that issue uh, uh, the politics of fear that Colonel uh, Kleinman talked about. Uh, the uh, problem of Guantanamo has essentially been used by the other party uh, to whittle down the changes that President Obama announced he wanted to affect um, in American policy. And, uh, this, the state of exception. And um, uh, we're seeing a kind of bargaining going on now uh, between the administration uh, and uh, uh, Lindsey Graham, among others, um, about what will be necessary to actually secure the closing of Guantanamo. And one of the things that Graham is apparently demanding is that terrorists, uh, accused terrorists, be tried in, um, uh, before military commissions and not in federal court. Uh, so uh, I think the political dynamic here is quite vivid. I mean, I think Lindsey Graham is a good man. He's a former JAG. He, you know, I, I don't, again, don't think he's doing this entirely for political reasons. But I think there is a struggle to maintain uh, the war on terror as the signal issue of the Republican uh, Party. And we see this popping up uh, repeatedly, anyway. Deborah, can, can I jump in to, mm -hmm. to respond? I think the use of the term state of exception is just not, not very helpful. And, and to a large extent, you know, this is reflected in, in, in Josh's question. As, as you mentioned, the eight uh, characteristics are defined, they are defined with respect to the Bush administration. And so you can't just say the state of the exception is what the Bush administration did, especially if, as you say, there have been other states of exception where, for example, torture did not take place. The torture is not in your list, by the way. But so if, if, if torture is central to a state of exception, then this is the first state of exception in American history. Now, the Cold War, the, the eight characteristics that you do mention do characterize the Cold War. And I think one should think more about the Cold War. One also had fear, paranoia, the McCarthy era, vast presidential discretion, the ability of the president to you know, incinerate the world without asking a court first or getting a, a permission from Congress. So I, I think it'd be useful to, to, to think about the relationship between the current period and the Cold War. But I think <clears throat> important methodologically would be what I would suggest, get rid of the, the term state of exception, which I think is too, it, it's too discontinuous in a way that's uh, which is misleading. What, what you're really interested in is the extent of presidential discretion. 
how much discretion should the president have? How limited should government be? And if you think of it in that terms, the difference between the Clinton administration and the Bush administration is that the Clinton administration wasn't, was not the degree of presidential discretion. It was the extent to which the Clinton administration was faced with a threat that was here and now. It was not, so it did not use all of the powers that were um, at its discretion. It didn't have to. There was no need uh, to do so. But it had those powers. And so maybe what your argument is, is that we should lament the decline of the separation of powers, that we should be worried about it, that among other things it leads to torture, for example. But, um, but, but then the question is, well, you know, what is the alternative that you, that you want? Uh, if, if other presidents did a good job during, let's say, World War II or even arguably during the Cold War, thanks to their discretionary powers, what are we giving up? by, uh, if anything, perhaps nothing in your view, if we impose uh, constraints on, on the executive and what would be the nature of these constraints? Well, um, thanks for that. I think, um, you know, we have a, uh, a sort of different view about inevitability, basically. Um, I think your uh, belief seems to be, and it's reflected in your book, but also in your comments just now, that whatever president was in power would have responded in this way. Um, perhaps the particulars would have been different, but in general, they would have, they would have responded um, uh, in precisely the same way. And I, I guess I just don't believe that that's, that that's the case, that that's, uh, that that's true. Um, I think uh, the administration uh, that was in power responded in a particular way, not least because um, it had a very uh, somewhat unusual in American history, certainly in post-war American history, um, tendency toward unilateralism, uh, tendency toward uh, a very strong belief in the unitary executive um, that isn't really present on the Democratic side. I'm not saying that a Democratic uh, uh, president in power uh, wouldn't have acted unilaterally in certain ways, but I think you know, this administration in their national security strategy of 2004 said, um, this is a line I'd like to get right. Um, uh, nations will continue to challenge us employing the weapons of the weak, including international fora, judicial processes, and terrorism. <laughs> um, now that is uh, a remarkable statement that identifies multilateral institutions and uh, judges and international law with terrorism as uh, things that are simply used by definition by weaker states uh, to challenge a stronger one. Um, that's a very radical view. And I'm saying not compared to Clinton, but compared to Eisenhower. Um, it's a very radical view. And so I think uh, this administration, in fact, the previous one was different. Um, I think it made different choices. I think the decision about torture, and you're right, it isn't listed on, in my list, but it's represented by the tendency toward improvisation, toward unilateral presidential power, uh, toward especially the calculation of risk, which maybe isn't an argument uh, I made uh, well enough or clearly enough yesterday, but it had very real consequences uh, when it came to choices that were made based on very limited information. Um, uh, and the emphasis on sort of leaning forward uh, uh, recognizing no boundary lines. I realize that's overstating it. 
Um, but I think there were certain ten. You know, administrations have characteristics, and it's quite possible if they were never attacked, uh, obviously the administration would not have adopted uh, those those policies. Uh, but you can see, you know, if you go back uh, in the early '90s, I forget when it was, the national security strategy that was drafted under the first uh, Bush administration um, uh, had a line in it that caused a big kerfuffle. You may remember this. Uh, that essentially we have to keep other states from uh, challenging us, regional powers from challenging us. We must be strong enough. And it was this was accurately diagnosed as a uh, warning that even after the Cold War, we have to keep the Germans and the Japanese down. And uh, it, it became this big thing, and it was taken out, and so on. I don't know if anybody else remembers this, but the, the reason I'm bringing it up is because it was Paul Wolfowitz who essentially was responsible for that. Um, it doesn't make him a bad person, but it means that he had a certain attitude about presidential power and unilateral use of American power post-Cold War that, or in general, that I think uh, was different, that distinguishes this administration. So I don't think uh, it's the same. And I, um, uh, you, you may be right that state of exception is not the most useful analytic term, but nonetheless, I think one has to, in fact, separate this uh, from uh, other periods. I, rep I agree with you that you can identify overlapping periods and so on, but I think, nonetheless, the uh, term is, is uh, clear enough and has advantages over state of emergency because it isn't simply uh, legal. It's, as I said yesterday, it's in its essence political, and as uh, Colonel Kleinman said more eloquently than I. Anyway, I'm sorry to answer at such length. Sorry. Um, I should ask that when people um, uh, get on the queue, they, uh, when they speak, they in, um, introduce themselves. So the first speaker was Josh Cohen, who's from philosophy, law, and political science. So Elaine is next on the queue. Um, Elaine Scary, uh, and um, I, I in, a, in a way, what I want to say may reenact a little bit the exchange that uh, just happened between Eric and, and Mark, and it goes to this question of precedence. Like Steve Kleinman, I think, and like I guess all three of you on some level, I think that the focus really needs to be kept on torture, and uh, and when it is kept on torture. Um, Eric, you said a moment ago, it's clear that this is that there is a correct use of the, the term state of exception for the Bush administration. Torture is something that, for which there is no exception. In a way, it's the counterpart to the state of exception in that the rules about torture always stipulate and there are no exceptions. That's what Geneva says. That's what the, the CAT, uh, the Convention Against Torture, says, that there, there is no exception. It, of course, it's assuming that the urge to torture doesn't occur in peacetime. Um, it's, it's not an emergency break that's there for in peacetime because it's not going to come up in peacetime. It's precisely for when there is an emergency or there is urgency or there is time shortage that you might be tempted to do this and you're not allowed to do it. And prior to the Bush administration, not only did we have international prohibitions, we had national prohibitions and even exceptional legal status, such as extraterritorial jurisdiction, where even if the event didn't happen on home so soil, it could be tried, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you know, I tried in the body of pain to talk about w why it has this special status. Recently, um, Jeremy Waldron in Columbia Law Review talks about the fact that it is the line in the sand between mm -hmm. Uh, civilization and whatever word you want to use for something that isn't civilization, and that it is the, the foundation 
on which we keep in place our commitment to the rule of law, most of whose laws have much more ambiguity about them than the prohibition on torture. They allow for leeways, they allow for this or that, and if you let this one go, says Waldron, you let, begin to let everything go that in which, in which, are, are, in which we have much less confidence. Now, in, in citing both Mark, when you cite, and Eric, when you cite these precedents I, th that don't go to torture, but I just want to address for a moment the use of those precedents. Part of what they remind us is of the fact that the what happened during the Bush years will also be used as a precedent in the future. And when people do bad things, they'll say, yeah, but that happened in 2001 through 2008. That is, each one that happens becomes a kind of authorization for subsequent actions of cruelty that are against the rule of law. But the second thing I want to say is that, that when we cite Lincoln or Roosevelt, I mean, we have to, and I, and I understand that we should keep those historical moments in mind, but we should also keep in mind that someone like Lincoln originated the Libra Code that's seen as one of the great precedents for all international law at the moment when the fate of this country really was at stake, not when it was metaphorically at stake, not when one you know, comparatively small sector of its ground was at stake, but when the whole thing was at stake. And that's when he said um, you know, that, that these originated some of these rules, including, uh, you know, Eric will be happy to, to hear, absolute prohibition on targeted assassination. Um, and, you know, again, Roosevelt, um, we've been told that, you know, we have this, we have uh, our founders institute this commander-in-chief clause. Well, I would say not entirely. What, the president becomes commander-in-chief in, in one of two situations. One, if the country is attacked, not metaphorically attacked by Iraq or some place far away that might in the future do something, but attacked as we were in World War II, um, or as we were on 9-11, um, or if Congress issues a declaration of war. And that converts the president into a, a, a commander-in-chief. But Roosevelt, when we were attacked by Pearl Harbor, he began to take defensive uh, action. But within hours, he went to Congress for a, a formal declaration of war. And I'm just saying these things to, to say that we shouldn't cite these bad things or these exceptional things and not remember that actually, if we look at those administrations, there were many confirmations of the presidential commitment to the rule of law and to separation of powers, which I, I don't, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but where is that, that, uh, that commitment to the rule of law and separation of powers in the Bush years? He did everything possible to read out Congress, to read out the Supreme Court. In cases like Hamden uh, and Raoul, the Supreme Court said that, that, that the, what Bush had tried to, to do was not only say that that, uh, that, that, that uh, Hamden was not within the penumbra of the law, but that Bush was not in the penumbra of the law, and said that that was wrong, he was. So that, that would just be the qualification. Yes, we should see the precedents, but not uh, uh, imagine a kind of sweeping contempt for the rule of the law that we saw in the first decade of this century. Okay, can I respond? I appreciate what you've just said. That, that really provokes a lot of thought. And I'll continue the idea of being provocative. And that is this. Let's, let's do a thought experiment. Because I don't know what the answer is. We're looking back in time and recreating history. But what if 9-11, instead of 9-11, it was 9-98. Or excuse me, 9-11 of 98. And President Clinton was, was president. Being advised by 
a different but similar-minded similar group of people about how you should respond to it. I wonder, I really wonder, if the political dynamic of today where you see Republicans uh, circling the wagons in defense of the Bush administration-era policies, the Democrats would be doing for the Clinton administration. Because that's why my response to Professor Danner's remarks focused on the politics of fear. It's a, my concern is what we do out of fear. I don't think that uh, you know, the, Bush, the Bush administration is being vilified for things it did wrong. And, and for things it did wrong, it should be. But to, to make that a state of exception, as opposed to what has happened in previous administrations, I'm saying it's potential. A good place to use this term at Stanford University, you go back to the Stanford prison experiment. It's a term I developed. I call it the Zimbardo potential. In this group, in this room full of very distinguished individuals, under the wrong circumstances, I suspect there's going to be some percentage of people who do the most horrific things. And what keeps us from doing that? And that is a, a consistency, a brave, consistent adherence to the rule of law as embodied by the Constitution and, and articulated through the various laws that we have. And again, we have lawyers in the room, so I'm not going to go any further than that because I'm on thin ice. But, but, but that's the key. It's, 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 it's understanding. And, and why, is, why is torture relevant? I would say it's like economics. We don't know, we really don't know if a recession occurred until after it happened. But there are leading indicators. For every sort of economic cycle, there are leading indicators. And I think if you look back historically, what's the leading indicator of a state of exception? It's a suspension of writ of habeas and also how we treat prisoners. And so when we see this happening, we should step back and say, whoa, I, I've seen this movie before. I think we need to, to respond to it. And that, that's where the concern is. And that's where you know, torture, why do we do that? As you mentioned, under peacetime circumstances? No, it's when we're, when we're fearful. In, in, in a state of emergency, we translate that into a state of exception. Steve, let me, let me just add, I think that if this had happened in 1998, Clinton would have acted exactly the same way except for torture. Um, and I think he would have made similar arguments. He would not have engaged in the rhetorical excess. I agree with that entirely. He would not have, maybe he wouldn't have even called it a war on terror. He would have done the same thing. He would have gone to Congress for the AUMF. He would have detained people. I mean, look, it's, it is a war in Afghanistan. I mean, whatever you think about the war on terror, there is a war going on in Afghanistan. There was shortly after 9-11. All of these authorities uh, follow naturally from that. Now, just to get back to Elaine's... Could I, could, could I okay. just make a yeah, quick comment ahead. on that and let you get... Um, I agree that some, he would have done some of the same things, some of the same things. Um, I think, though, first of all, the torture exception, I think, is a very large one. Uh, and I don't think he would have done, I mean, this is complete counterfactual, of course, but I don't think he would have done Guantanamo. I think the, one of the reasons I tried to identify these attributes as much broader as tendencies of how an administration works, not simply as policies, is because I don't think you would have had the emphasis on uh, improvisation and on circumventing the workings of the government itself. Where, where not, would he have detained the people they captured in Afghanistan? Bagram. Bagram is Guantanamo in a different country. There, there would have been prisoners, you know, there would have been prisoners. And well, of, have co of, co them, of right? course there would have right. been prisoners. Right. But the, the question isn't whether there would have been prisoners. The question whether there is whether there would have been orderly procedures to actually see whether uh, some of them, there was some evidence to keep them. And one of the distinctive things about the detention policies of the Bush administration was they didn't have in place those procedures and they ended up keeping a lot of people for a very long time who shouldn't have been in detention. Um, and I don't think that would have happened under the Clinton administration. I'm not say, saying they wouldn't have made mistakes, they would have. No, uh, 
Well, let me ask well, for both of you to consider. Okay, no. go ahead, please. Let, let, let please. me just quickly, I just wanted to get back. One thing that worries me, I, I don't want to be in the push, position of defending the Bush administration for two reasons. One is I do think it blundered tremendously. And I've been persuaded by you and many other people that the torture policy was definitely a blunder, I, it de definitely a mistake that caused much more harm and perhaps no good uh, at all. But um, I do think, though, that the criticism of the Bush administration are, are reflect a wandered view of American history. And I think you must know this as well as anybody else. The CIA trained people to torture throughout the Cold War, depended on the information that was obtained. This was an early form of outsourcing that Clinton would later use with, rendi with rendition. The Libra Code had exceptions for military necessity that were undefined. Torture was prevalent during uh, the Civil War. Lincoln didn't approve of torture. It wasn't his official position. But he did nothing to stop it, and he was well aware of, that, well aware of the fact that torture took place in Union uh, prison camps. In World War II, torture wasn't used. But of course, atrocities were committed against Japanese soldiers in enormous numbers. And the uh, firebombing and, and dropping of nuclear weapons were atrocities. And I just don't see how they can be separated from torture. I just, I just cannot agree that there's something special about torture compared to dropping a nuclear uh, bomb on the city. Throughout this entire period, think of it again. The torture was outlawed in 1996. Right? So all these things that we sort of think is baseline, you know, the way America is, that's not the way America was. There was a lot more discretion, which the executives used on, over and over again in order to do what they thought was necessary in order to um, you know, protect the country. I'm going to give Elaine a quick okay, uh, rejoinder because I have a few. First of all, writing. just a Sorry I agree with you that <laughs> nuclear weapons are the one thing that's the exact equivalent of torture. and. Uh, we can talk about that later. But I think there's one important piece of information to give here, and that's the necessity law, as it's defined in the military, is not used in the way that civilians use it. In military law, the way necessity is used is this. You, here's the, the legal perimeter within which you can act. You're required to use the smallest amount of force needed in order to bring about the result up to, but not over, the legal frame. Necessity doesn't give you the license to go over the legal frame. Necessity only explains how far up the perimeter you can go to approach the legal limit. So it's got a much more, uh, I think, uh, you know, important kind of meaning than the civilian use of it, which is to just throw law to the wind. Well, we can talk about that. Right. And since you'll have a chance That's tomorrow as a commentator, <laughs> um, I have Rob. Seems to be an emerging, emerging consensus here about the, the unambiguous badness of, uh, of torture under the Bush administration. So let's just um, keep on that for a moment. Mark, I wanted to ask, given Obama's um, uh, inclination to look forward rather than to look backward, can you say something about your own views about how we should hold accountable those who perpetrated torture, those who authorized it, and in particular given the local interest, how you would assign responsibility or culpability to Condoleezza Rice? <laughs> she in the room? <laughs> Local interest is a, is a right. Um, good heavens. Well, my pause should indicate what I'm going to say as a first line, which is that's an extremely complicated question. Um, my view is that uh, the idea of prosecution in any near-term way uh, is... Uh, 
simply unrealistic, that it's politically, not only politically impossible, uh, but it is a fact uh, that, as I said yesterday, responsibility for these policies uh, was spread very broadly through the top levels of the administration. And it's also clear if you read uh, the documents, uh, particularly the documents from the Inspector General of the, of the CIA, uh, notably, but also on the Justice Department side, uh, that this was in their minds. I mean, that's kind of where I closed yesterday, that, that they were thinking about this. In fact, everybody was thinking about it as these policies were put in place. And those who were charged with carrying them out uh, were determined that they were not going to be placed in the dock in the few that they were going to have guarantees that they wouldn't be placed in the dock in the future. So we're kind of on the stage that they spotlit in advance for us in, in talking about this. Uh, having said that, I also believe um, that, and this goes back to Colonel Kleinman's point, that, that um, the thing that needs really to be destroyed is not the people who carried out these policies and not even the people who put them into place, uh, who devised them, um, but the idea that this is a necessary thing, a permissible thing, and that if we don't have it, the country will be put at risk. And I think that is, and I agree, again, as I said, with everything Colonel Kleinman said, I think that's the, the, the really significant uh, change here, that uh, the political evolution of thinking about these issues um, and how do you do that? How do you make that kind of political change? I think it's very hard, especially because this is kind of the battleground of our, our politics right now, particularly whenever there's an attempt uh, uh, at an attack, as we saw on Christmas Day. Um, there's a, the political reality is that the Republican Party's one of its few uh, distinctive advantages when you look at the polling results, and this is, you can argue about this a lot, but is still in national security, depending on how you, you pose the question. And they want the discussion to be on that ground. I, John, you, Condoleezza Rice, I, I don't know uh, uh, what to say about that beyond, I think, and I've advocated this before, that Obama missed a, a major chance when he didn't convene uh, a boring as it sounds, uh, high-level commission to basically look at all of this stuff, to look at the history, to go into the uh, uh, classified documents of whatever degree of security that the former vice president constantly points to when he comes out and talks about this, and to deliver a verdict uh, on this policy, on what happened, on how it was useful, if it was, and what it did to the country. Uh, and, you know, whenever I say that, I, invariably somebody says, well, what if they find that it was, you know, a great thing? Uh, and I respond, I can't imagine that they would. Um, I can't, I mean, who knows? But um, I think you need the political, first of all, a political destruction of the idea of this. Uh, and I think the people who did it are, in a sense, uh, ancillary. They're not the main issue to me, um, anyway. They're not the main issue. That's, that's an important question that... Can, do you have time? I'll, be, I'll try to be brief. Here's my concern. Beyond the political, absolutely beyond the political, we can't, we have to look back. We have to examine, you know, in the military we have a history of what we call after action reports. After any small operation or war, what went well and what went wrong? How can we get better? We're trying to, to ignore what went wrong because it's ugly, because it's unseemly, because it's distasteful, and because, frankly, it's very political. But how are we to assure ourselves, how are we to assure the citizens of the United States that this won't happen again? And this is the element that I think needs to be focused on. It's not the politics, because we're not going to get President George Bush again. It's not, we're not going to get President Bill Clinton again. It's not individuals. 
But here's the deal. We have what I call the tyranny of the dilettante in this country. You look at the current cabinet members from here going back. Who's our current director of central intelligence? And I don't mean this disrespectful at all to Mr. Leon Panetta. But Leon Panetta, first day as a professional intelligence officer was the day he became the director of central intelligence. And that's the same is true of George Tennant, who served under two. George Tennant didn't have the profound knowledge that W. Deming, the father of, uh, of quality management, said it was necessary for any leader to make decisions that make sense. What seems superficially to be common sense sometimes can be a disaster in the making. For him not to, not to be able to say, wait a second, we're bringing in two seer psychologists who've never actually seen a real world interrogation. They've, 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 they've helped develop a, a scheme that, that used the communist interrogation model under controlled conditions with US persons to try to make them produce propaganda and then reverse engineer, which is not the right term, to apply it to, to elicit information in a, in a cross-cultural setting. You know, reliable information was was nonsense. And if we had people with, with the profound knowledge, with expertise, not the dilettante, not the person who was politically recognizable, who had been a former congressman, therefore could elbow with, with the other congressman, who's somebody who no kidding knew what they did, they would have if, if I was DCI, I'd say, whoa, if we need a program on resistance, we'll hire these two people. What we need to know about interrogation. And what had happened, the director of national intelligence is not an intelligence officer. The director of defense intelligence agency is not an intelligence officer. We have people who are making, who are advising the president, the senior leaders of this country, who know nothing of the context of the history of the nuance of what we're dealing with. And I think that's where a commission needs to look and say, we can't afford to do that that way anymore. Not, not that I have any emotional involvement in that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just thought I'd ask a little about the emotional basis of public support for torture. Because uh, Stephen said fear. I don't know, is that really an adequate uh, understanding? You, you, Mark, earlier in, in the middle of the war on terrorists, said very plainly that torture, the practice of torture, survived its revelation. We knew about it, the 2004 election happened, people supported it. In fact, one of Kerry's problems is he projected that he wouldn't torture him. So maybe that's why he lost. So there is a public, now is fear the reason for that? And so one of the many asides in your lecture is this idea of public secrecy. And I think if you could say a little about that in this context, because public secrecy, as I understand it, isn't just uh, selected leaking, but it has a kind of pornographic element. It's half revelation. Showing you're doing something, you don't want to show so much that it's disgusting, but you want to show so much that it's exciting. There's something going on. It's appealing. It maybe is appealing to omnipotence fantasies. I don't know what 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 are the tangle of emotions alongside fear that lead the public to go along with this. Well, that's a, I think that's a very that's a very good question. Again, it kind of anticipates a couple of things I'm going to say later. Um, but I think your omnipotent, what did you say, omnipotence fantasy? Uh, I think that's a great uh, phrase. And you know, if you look at um, 24, uh, if you look at, uh, I think it's, it's kind of ancestor, uh, Dirty Harry, um, there is clearly something very uh, calming uh, and gratifying about the notion that there are people who are willing to do anything to protect us. That is, there's something gratifying in some way about the notion of untrammeled power that will be deployed to help and protect us. Uh, I remember vividly, um, I did a series of, of debates before the Iraq War 
uh, and I was debating Christopher Hitchens in, in Berkeley, Berkeley, California, Zellerbach Hall, this huge audience. Uh, this was two months before the war. And uh, Christopher said something like, well, you know, at the end of the day, we've been attacked and we have to respond, he said. And there was, you know, Berkeley, again, from the middle of the crowd, there was this, you know, this kind of roar of emotion uh, that I'll never forget because, um, it, 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 you know, to me it was... No, it's no. Well, that's what I'm saying. You said omnipotence fantasy. There was a, a feeling of power about it that, and I think an underlying kind of mode of thought about the United States and its power that the U.S. is all powerful. It can destroy the world if it wants to. But you know, usually it's trammeled by laws. It's Mr. Nice Guy. You know, we helped rebuild the Germans and the Japanese and went home. We we in general are an absolutely exceptional nation, and we don't use our power. But now. Enough, Mr. Nice Guy. <clears throat> and that's what, you know, taking the gloves off, I think, uh, comes from as well. So I think the implication when you bring up public secrecy is that people, in fact, this was popular, people enjoyed the notion that these people were somewhere off being uh, smashed around and waterboarded and all the rest of it. And I think, that's, I think that's true. I think there's some truth to that. And I think it's worth remembering, and I tried to remind us yesterday, that, you know, we've known about this for eight years. Uh, the first full report of it, uh, big report, was at the front page of the Washington Post at the end of uh, December, uh, Christmas, I think, actually, uh, in 2002. So not quite, not quite eight years, but almost. Um, and, and our attitudes, it should be said and admitted, uh, our attitudes, meaning public attitudes, ha have evolved to some extent in an, in an interesting way. And people did not denounce this necessarily. In fact, Jonathan Alter, who's a classmate of mine, a liberal columnist at Newsweek, I remember vividly, others maybe do as well, a column he wrote a couple months after 9-11 titled, Time to Think About Torture? Um, and so, you know, this was something very much across the political spectrum, uh, and attitudes have evolved in an interesting way. I think they, you know, polls on this are somewhat uh, as polls on many complicated issues are unreliable, you can't depend on them. But there do seem, there seems in general to have been a drift downward in approval that has now turned around, that has gone in the other direction. And I think in part this is because of the public debate, in particular the remarks of uh, former Vice President Cheney, who is not a popular figure, but I think when he talks about these issues is persuasive uh, to a lot of people. Um, Anyway, that's the beginning. Of I'd a, like a just to answer. propose an alternative hypothesis. I, you mm -hmm. know, I find these emotional explanations are obviously seductive and interesting, but there's a much simpler explanation, which is that people simply think that torture is effective. Now, they may well be wrong. Steve mm -hmm. is, persuade, is very persuasive that this is a wrong view, but they believe this. Why? They've watched movies. They've you know, been beaten up by the schoolyard bully. Who knows why? People believe this. They also think it's horrible. It's a horrible thing mm -hmm. to do to people. They think in normal times, when there's not too much at stake, uh, there's no reason to use it. But when there's a serious threat, it should be used. And, there's, and it could well be that there's nothing more to it than that. And that mm -hmm. if you want to wipe out torture, all you have to do is have people like Steve, you know, you know, trying to go public with the reasons why, in fact, it does not work effectively. And, uh, and, and actually causes more, more, more harm uh, than good. Well, I if agree you really, with that. If you really think it's, it's you know, deep-rooted emotions about omnipotence and all that stuff, then you might as well just throw up your hands, right? You no, no, I, I, I actually, you know, the, the bit about the commission and essentially was Steve, yeah, so go, Steve going public. I mean, yeah. you know, you, I think you need, uh, one of the problems that, with this becoming, in effect, a political football is 
uh, you were talking about this last night, that, that, or this morning, I think, that there isn't, um, uh, you know, you don't have informed opinion about this getting out to people. That what people see is, first of all, 24 and other dramas like it. And there's a long history of, of that. Very long history, yes. uh, And there's a reason for it. It's inherently dramatic. You know, it presents moral choices, it, you know, down to the wire, all of the rest of it. It's 24 work for a reason. Uh, but you don't have anything uh, challenging that. And the contrary argument is a lot harder and more complicated to make. Uh, so I think one of the reasons I think a commission is important is because you get an informed and authoritative opinion, essentially saying this stuff was not a good idea, which I think is what they would come up with, actually. So. I, I think I appreciate what you're saying, but I think what we're learning from neuroeconomics is we try to think of ourselves as these rational creatures, when in fact there's these emotional cycles that really drive at the superficial level, conscious level, we think, I, I weighed out my options. And so let's walk back to Cat. That, that experience at Berkeley where they had that, <clears throat> let's walk mm -hmm. back the cat of that emotion. Was that based on, on hubris? Was it based on machuism? No, it was based on a period of fear that as that, that, that threat sort of subsided, and we reflected on it, that fear, that emotional fear energy was transformed into something very similar to revenge. Mm -hmm. But revenge, if you, if you follow it historically, and I don't mean to, 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 it is seductive to just get emotional, and emotional appeal can be abused, and I don't wish to do that here. But uh, if, if, he, if we decide that the average person, ill-informed as they are, thinks torture is effective, we have to ask ourselves, okay, well, then that's, that's, that's a scary point. That's a, that's, a, that's a strategic inflection point. What pushes us over when we are in a state of fear? And, and that's what we need to be careful of. And, and mm -hmm. that's where we get your state of deception. Okay, I, I had a small, uh, Josh, quick yeah. two-finger uh, in the People have gone public for a long time with this ineffectiveness, and the thing that needs to be explained it points back to the some psychological story is that people have really a lot of trouble believing that it's ineffective, despite the evidence mm -hmm. that it's ineffective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Okay. Uh, well, I, I just wanted to uh, go back to this uh, Schmidt scenario, and there was there's. Uh, somehow a notion that the sovereign uh, uh, pronounces a state of exception because there is some threat outside of the state that is somehow completely separate from the state uh, that threatens the population and therefore the sovereign somehow has to declare a state of exception. <clears throat> but if we look at particular cases where a state of exception uh, as a rhetorical device has been used as in the case of uh, Chile with Pinochet declaring that there's a war with communism, therefore there's an exception. Um, or even in the case uh, of the US, uh, with the involvement of, of US foreign policy in Afghanistan during the Cold War, we can see that the, the state is actually tethered to the threat that emerges through its own history. So I'm wondering if we could somehow problematize the notion that the threat uh, is somehow separate from the state itself. I, I'm not sure I understand what you mean tethered to. You mean that the state, in, for example, the U.S. and Afghanistan... The state generates its own reasons for a state of exception. Mm. And the Afghanistan parallel, I just want to make sure I understand what you mean. So, for example, the, the U.S. government was involved with uh, the Taliban during the Cold War in terms of fighting the Russians. 
right? Mm. So in a, in, a, in, a, in a way, as if 9-11 had nothing to do with U.S. foreign policy throughout the 20th century in the Middle East. Mm. Uh, well, am I, yeah, am well, I making... The U.S. Yeah. involved with the Mujahideen, some of whom became Taliban. Not, it wasn't mm. that type of nexus, but I get your point, and I think it's an interesting one. I, I think, yeah. I mean, I think th there is a distinction here. You can always criticize the sovereign, you know, the dictator, the president, for calling a state of exception. You could say it's wrong. You, you could say the only reason we have this problem is because of actions that you took in the past. That doesn't really get away from the problem, which is now, you know, here and now, we have a threat. The threat doesn't need to be external. It could be internal. It could be an insurgency. It could be uh, economic. This, I did want to no, say something very related, though, going back to what you said about the Bush administration's amateurness, right? The, it, it experiments, it does all these things, it doesn't understand. You're very interesting on how they went around the FBI, you know, mm -hmm. and <laughs> gave up all this expertise. But that is the essence of the state of exception. Schmidt said that. The rules that had evolved to deal with normal times don't work mm -hmm. because everything's different. And so, Take uh, Franklin Roosevelt during the Great Depression. Completely amateurish, completely experimenting with all of these mm. things because nobody knew what else to do. So, so that is, you know, that's part of the nature of the state of exception. Mm -hmm. can, I, can I say a word about I'll say it quickly. Uh, your point. Um, oh, my name is Sebastian Galero. I'm in the drama department. I'm a uh, student. Thank you. I, I, you know, what I get from your point is uh, if you talk, and I, again, we'll talk about this today, but if you talk about Al-Qaeda, and there are policy reasons for its attack on the United States. Uh, and they, uh, that doesn't mean that, the, needless to say, that the U.S. should change its policies toward Egypt or toward, or toward Saudi Arabia or whatever, but they do come up when you try to approach the public policy side. When Obama goes and famously gives a speech in Cairo uh, and says a lot of good things that are supposed to politically, as it were, drain the swamp. Uh, there is a problem because at the end of the day, the U.S. is giving a couple billion a year to the Mubarak regime and, you know, uh, sees no way to evolve that regime into something else. So I think the dynamic you're talking about is real, no question about it. I'm not sure what the answer is, but it's real. So I have a bunch of people still on the queue, including myself. <laughs> it is noon, and I, um, I'm going to uh, well, you can take, take the my main moderator's role. privilege, no, if you like. I, I, no? I'll have another chance. Okay. Um, as the uh, moderator and just keep us on time and, and thank the uh, commentators and Mark for a really interesting discussion which we will talk a lot more about. Um, both their, the le second lecture will be this evening and then we'll have another seminar Friday morning back in this room same time 10 to 12. So thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.